Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Henry Chong, founder and CEO of Fusang, a full-service exchange for tokenized securities and cryptocurrencies that is fully licensed and regulated in two jurisdictions in Asia. Henry, thanks for joining us. Excited to be here. Now, the business is older than many would expect. It goes back to 2015. As you look back over the six or seven years that, uh, that have passed since then, what do you think are the key milestones, the key achievements during those years? Oh, it's been an interesting couple of years for sure. You know, Fusang, as you point out today, were Asia's first fully licensed and regulated end-to-end platform uh, for security tokens and other kinds of digital assets. And, you know, we think today that our unique combination of licenses, of of technology platforms, and really operational know-how is what lets us build this end-to-end ecosystem for these digital assets in terms of issuing them, trading them, listing them, and the entire lifecycle and that settlement process. And, you know, when we started this whole journey a couple of years ago, it was really because um, we, we were looking to address a number of issues that I saw in, uh, let's call it traditional capital markets, as people say these days. Uh, and really, that's around the fact that still today, the vast majority of securities in the world and all kinds of assets, your homes, your cars, etc., these are all fundamentally represented by pieces of paper. And even if they're not a, a physical piece of paper, they're a PDF sitting somewhere. And, and as a technologist, you would say, well, that's not really, it's not digital. It's not machine interactable. It's just, we've got a picture of paper instead now. And I don't think a lot of people realize just how that back-end settlement process is based on people and it's based on an awful lot of paper. Uh, and sometimes when I give talks, I have this slide where I show off um, really the world's first ever public share certificate uh, from the Dutch uh, VOC, you know, the counterpart of the British East India Company. And this was back in, I believe, 1606. And it was a handwritten share certificate. Uh, and they had a, a list basically of shareholders written in on parchment and, and I guess a pencil. And when you look at a share certificate today, really not that much has changed. Again, we, we, we type it out on Microsoft Word and print it out or keep it as a PDF. But beyond that, it's really fundamentally the same format. And again, uh, over these last few years, Fusang has been centered around this entire journey of saying, can we fundamentally digitize the way in which securities are actually represented, recorded, and traded in the first place? And everything we've done in these last few years has been, well, number one, uh, can we acquire the necessary licenses to operate? And I've always said that that's a necessary but not sufficient addition. Number two, can we build out technology platforms to be able to support the infrastructure needed for this ecosystem? Uh, And can we actually operate businesses around that? Because uh, in, I think, the the digital asset space, sometimes people are very focused on the technology layer, on just technological capabilities. And again, that's great, but you need to be able, my belief is, to operate as a licensed financial institution. You need to go to your customers and actually be able to do a job for them as a regulated institution and just directly serve a customer need. I think many people uh, watching this interview, particularly in Europe and the United States, will be dis- surprised to, to hear you talk so much about paper. Is mm-hmm. this, a, is this a, an aspect of the Asian marketplace or is it something you see on a, on a global scale? 
Certainly here in Hong Kong, for example, you've got physical paper shares. So Hong Kong does not have dematerialization in that sense. Uh, and when you transfer shares, um, the instruments of transfer need to be stamped with a chop. Uh, stamp duty must be literally stamped and title doesn't transfer until you do this at your local post office or equivalent. Uh, but as I said, even in countries where you have what people call dematerialization, you don't have to have physical paper, um, the way in which we keep records is really not that different. Uh, for a lot of banks and other settlement agencies, this effectively becomes either, again, PDFs or some kind of fancy Excel spreadsheet, a database when you get right down to it. And the issue with that is there is a lot of coordination that needs to happen in the financial system. You've got banks and brokers and exchanges and a whole world of financial intermediaries, all of whom need to keep their own records and all of whom need to make sure that those records align at all times. In theory, right? It's supposed to be a perfect match. Of course, that never quite happens. And so we have this entire industry whose job it is just to try and align data. And I believe that by using blockchain technology to fundamentally represent the base layer of things like securities, we can do away with coordination and allow intermediaries to really focus on, am I adding value to my clients? So I'll give you one very specific example. A lot of brokers today, they really are what I call access conduits, right? So a client goes to them and you help me buy a share um, and, and your job really is there because it's not so easy for me as an individual to transact directly. I can't, for example, walk into the floor of a stock exchange and buy shares. I actually think that brokers need to metamorphose into saying, okay, well, can I actually do something beyond just a very almost thin access layer? Can I start to focus on actually providing advice? Can I actually start to focus on things like well, recommending what kind of shares my client should buy instead of just being a conduit. Because again, in a digital world, that's going to become easier and easier to do. Now, getting rid of paper obviously makes the marketplace more efficient, transforming brokers from being pure conduits into something a bit more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Raises in my mind this question, is what you're, you know, at a high level, what you're trying to do, are you trying to sort of reinvent the stock exchange to make it, cheaper, faster, better? Or are you actually trying to do something with Fusang which is completely and utterly new? What's the balance between the old and the new in what you're trying to do? Uh, a little bit of both, I hope. You know, I any technology at some level needs to be ch cheaper, better, quicker, faster. Um, but to me, that that's what I call like the level one benefit of all technology. The, the more interesting, the level two benefit is asking the question of what can technology do that's new and unique that I couldn't do before having this technology. If the only answer uh, to having a new tech is it's a little bit cheaper or faster, as I said, that's a very thin benefit. Ultimately, what clients care most about is can you provide something transformative? A great analogy, I think, is something like um, e-commerce. You know, when a company like Amazon came along, it wasn't just, oh, I, I have an online store now to mirror an offline store. And again, that, that's very exciting. But the real, the really interesting uh, way in which companies like Amazon have reshaped how commerce is done is the fact that they have now been able to allow me, for example, to set up a store in Hong Kong, manufacture a product, but sell and ship to a global and online audience. It has fundamentally restructured uh, who can do business, how they can do business, whom they can sell to. And I think that the same thing is going to be true for capital markets. Too many people today look at blockchain tech just as, oh, can I use this to digitize existing processes, save me a bit of cost? Great. That's that's benefit for you as a firm. 
but you need to start asking what is the benefit for my clients? Again, what can they do with this new technology that they couldn't do before? And I think the answer is um, that this whole industry is going to evolve very similar to how a lot of other industries and technologies have. When you look at e-commerce, when you look at social media, et cetera, again, it hasn't just been better, cheaper, faster. It's been about what can I do in terms of how I can cut out layers of intermediaries and can I allow firms to start interacting directly with the end customers? And again, to, to, to bring it back to Fusang, Yes, we are, we've always tried to operate in terms of how we're licensed uh, as a traditional stock exchange to provide the same kind of benefits and features, but to also rethink what it means for our clients to interact with us. And the biggest principle of that is allowing them to come what I call B2C, direct to exchange. Traditional stock exchanges, again, you can't go trade directly with someone like Fusang, you can. And again, uh, we're doing so because we're really looking to copy uh, the way in which crypto exchanges work, which has been proven to work at scale and volume, but trying to do so with regulated assets, with securities. And that D2C, I think I heard you say, is, is going to be a, a, a global, your ambition is to be a global business, not just an Asian or a Hong Kong business. Yes. I mean, the we're, we're rooted in Asia. Um, all of us as people are largely based in Asia. That's our heritage. But the nature of, glo- of digital is that it is inherently global. And I think, again, that's, that's what's so exciting about the, the synergy between blockchain technology and capital markets. It's about, can we broaden access to a whole new pool of people who just simply, simply didn't have access to investments before? Uh, sitting in a place like Hong Kong or London or New York, it's very easy to feel like, Anyone can rock up to a broker and go and trade shares. But the truth is, that's just not true for the vast majority of people in the world. Uh, The average person cannot trade all shares everywhere. They trade shares in a very limited pool. And again, I think we can start looking at changing some of those things. Now, one of the obstacles to that global vision is, of course, regulation. Different countries have different regulations of the, the securities uh, industry. Now, you've chosen, as I said at the outset, to get licensed in these two jurisdictions, both Hong Kong and in Malaysia. What was your thinking? What was the logic of that? And, and what regulatory obligations do you assume as a result of being licensed in those two, two jurisdictions? And what freedoms does it give you to grow the business globally? I mean, we, we, we chose to start with Hong Kong and, and Labuan in Malaysia, because those really are home jurisdictions for us. Uh, as a greater group, we've operated in these places for a very long time, we're familiar with them, and we think they're incredibly vibrant financial centers. Uh, and really, again, uh, even though digital is inherently global, right, and cross-jurisdiction to some degree, you always need a home from which you operate. Uh, and part of the reason why we, for example, chose to base the stock exchange in Labuan is because, well, the regulators, I think, are both very digital and forward-thinking, but also because they provided a very clear roadmap in terms of how we could think about digitizing securities at the first layer and how we can think about beginning to look at trading these things. I think that too many um, regulators, when they look at regulating something like security tokens, they get very scared by the technology. And rightly so. When you look at the world of cryptocurrencies and NFTs, it's very different from how uh, traditional capital markets work. And so I think regulators get caught up trying to understand the technology when they really should be digging one layer deeper and saying, well, what exactly does this token represent? Is it a share? Is it uh, you know, a piece of art, et cetera? And regulate those accordingly. And I think 
there are a lot of forward-looking jurisdictions like Labuan where they've taken the right approach to say, okay, well, if a token represents a share in a company, why don't we just apply all the same rules and regulations like we would for any other company and actually provide a very clear path forward for companies like Fusao? It's 100% true that um, regulation in any aspect, nothing to do with this digital, regulation is different in different countries across the world. Um, but I think that there's quite frankly a lot of complaining in the security token industry. A lot of people point at rules and use that as an excuse for why they can't do something or why they can't create tokens actually backed by real assets, when really what they should be trying to do is say, well, well where can I operate? How can I operate? How can I find a model that allows me to find that path forward while still being fully compliant in the context of existing rules and regulations? And I think it's totally possible to do and to do today. Now, your direct-to-exchange model, you likened uh, what you're trying to do to, to the cryptocurrency exchanges. And one of the things about cryptocurrency exchanges, they kind of do everything. They do the issuance, the trading, the settlement, and in many cases, the, the custody. That seems to be changing a bit with NFTs, but that seems yeah. to be the basic model. Is that what Fusang is supplying? You're doing issuance, trading, settlement, custody, or are you doing a more limited set of things? In many ways, right? Especially when it comes to providing the infrastructure platform. Now, obviously, oh, we are an issuer for ourselves, right? We have digitized our own shares. We are going through a listing process and we're doing it on our own exchange. But obviously, in most of the cases, we won't be the issuer. We still need issuers who want to come sell securities, just as we need investors who want to come and trade on our platform. We don't provide both sides of the market. But when it comes to that infrastructure platform in between and managing the entire life cycle of a security from the creation, right, the issuance, both in terms of putting together the legal paperwork, the tokenization, listing, trading, settlement, et cetera. Yes, we can do all of that as a single platform. And we actually think it's essential that we do that as a platform. Uh, and, and, and by when I say doing that as an end-to-end -end process, I mean a few very specific things. The first is that by using uh, the underlying blockchain uh, layer to represent these securities, it makes a lot of sense that you have a single platform doing all of this. I don't need separate custody, settlement, and trading layers. I can and should be able to allow all of that to ride on the blockchain. So that's number one. But number two, I think it's very important that firms actually step up and offer to do services for clients, including issuers, as a regulated platform. Even in the digital blockchain space, the security token industry, uh, firms often do just one slice. They'll say, okay, I will help you with token issuance. I'll actually help you create the token, but that's it. You need to go to another firm for custody, another firm for helping to onboard investors, do KYC. And I don't think that makes any sense. Um, yes, we are digitizing existing processes. We're making them a bit easier, but we haven't really changed the way that anything works. I still have to deal with a whole slew of intermediaries. And again, for digital to really work, it has to be, I think, through a single seamless platform. Uh, and I believe this for a fact, because this is the way, as I said, that every other industry in the world is going, whether it's e-commerce, right? How we uh, communicate or interact or sell to customers today, it all works in a very similar way. And I think that capital markets are going to be no exception. Now, you've been very articulate uh, today about your ambition to, with this direct exchange model, to make it easier for the man or woman in the street to access institutional grade investments um, across equity bonds, real estate. In fact, if I, I might read a section to you from your, from your website where you say, we connect investors of all sizes with ambitious global companies that are already operating and making money. 
bypass the brokers and invest directly in companies you believe in. Fusang makes it easy to trade tokens, fiat, cryptocurrencies anywhere, anytime. And this is a crucial bit. Now we've leveled the playing field. It's game on for everyone. Now, tokenization mm -hmm. is presumably your your primary tool for making that happen for those Not, retail uh, Yes, I, I think it's one layer, right? Um, again, I, I, I worry that too many people in the digital asset industry get caught up with technology. And uh, perhaps we talk about a bit layer, later, but when I hear people talk about things like NFTs, that really worries me because an NFT is a type of technology. You've got fungible tokens, you have non-fungible tokens, makes total sense. But you need to, again, drill one layer deep and say, okay, well, if I have an NFT, what on earth does this token represent? Is it art? Is it et cetera? That's the question that investors should be asking. Again, with Fusang, um, yes, tokenization and the ability to encapsulate assets on the blockchain helps a lot. We could never have dreamed of building the kind of infrastructure that we have today without blockchain technology to ride on top of, but it's also being able to draw together a lot of different platforms all at the same time. I think it's our ability to actually go and onboard and investors directly to do things like AML KYC in a fully digital fashion, because like it or not, once you have a security, you need to be able to map that to identity of a real person or entity. So that's one layer, that digital identity. It is the ability to create tokens and manage the lifecycle around them. But I think it's also, as we've been talking about, that, that B2C access, allowing investors to also come and transact directly in those tokens. But again, all of this to me really needs to be centered around, well, what's the fundamental value that we're adding to our end customers? We've got issuers on one side and they fundamentally want to raise funds and also broaden their shareholder base. And we've got investors on the other side who want to be able to invest into exciting products. That to me is the fundamental thing that we always need to keep in mind and not get lost in terms of just providing uh, certain layers of services or settlement or et cetera, because that's not the real customer need. Uh, I heard this quote recently that I really like, which says, uh, customers don't want quarter inch drill bits. They want to buy quarter inch holes, which I think is totally true. And I think that if you approach that lens and say, well, capital markets were fundamentally um, the idea behind them was not so that we could trade and speculate in stocks. The idea was so that we can take uh, capital from investors and allocate them into projects, ideas, companies that need that capital to grow. That is literally what capitalism is based on. And again, I think that by providing a single end-to-end -end platform, we can really help facilitate that purpose in a way that traditional capital markets, in my opinion, have gotten a bit off track and forgotten about that. It seems to be one of the ways in which tokenization changes traditional capitalism, which you've referred to. Is it, I don't know, if we look back 30 years, we talked a lot about stakeholders, by which we meant the customers and the suppliers of, of companies yeah. and the creditors of companies. Now, it seems to me that, that if we look at what happened in the ICO boom, from which tokenization emerged and, and, and what has now grown into the decentralized or DeFi markets, mm -hmm. That idea of stakeholders being taken further, investors can be customers, they can be suppliers, they can be creditors, they can be managers, they can be employees of the same organization, the same company, the same enterprise through ownership of this token. So all these stakeholding roles are being merged into one. Do you think that's or into a single um, united uh, form of of ownership and employment and supply and credit? And so do you, do you feel yourselves to be part of 
a much more substantive revolution that's going on, which is actually changing the nature of capitalism through tokenization. You part well, I think that. Revolution is a, is a big and long-term goal. Uh, what we're very focused on is just, as I said, can we add value to customers and add value today? You know, that's it. the idea of stakeholders and, and stakeholder capitalism has recently become a bit of a buzzword at, at the last World Economic Forum. It was the theme. And I think that's because there's an increasing realization that maybe something's a little broken, not just in terms of capitalism, but in the sense of the alignment that all of us as individuals feel with the companies that we work for and are part of, the, the communities and countries in which we live in. There's an increasing sense of disconnect in the world today. And, you know, the idea of having alignment of who puts in money to a venture as a shareholder, let's call it, and having an interest in that venture is certainly nothing new. Uh, even before there were joint stock companies, um, you know, the, the initial idea of having a chartered enterprise started when people needed to set out on merchant voyages and said, well, how do we share the risk? How do we get everyone involved in the outcome who has a stake in this voyage to actually also be the people who can potentially profit from it? And when we today say, oh, well, uh, you've got all these big public companies and they don't care about their stakeholders, they don't care about the employees or the communities in which they live. ESG, for example, is a big buzzword today. I don't think it's an issue with the actual functional form. It's nothing, it's no issue, not an issue with companies or shares or anything like that. The issue is that somehow the set of shareholders and the set of stakeholders in a lot of entities and companies has become disconnected. So when I have a public company, often you'll have a marketing team that goes out and talks to a company's stakeholders, customers, gets them to want to do business with you as a company, gets you to want to pay money to your company. And then you've got an IR team that talks to your shareholders. And it's almost like never the twain shall meet. And so no surprise, people say, oh, well, you know, shareholders don't care about stakeholders. Well, obviously, they're two different groups of people. And again, to me, the answer is if we can start to make it easier than ever for companies, issuers to create assets, to create these as blockchain-based tokens and match those by making it as easy as possible for the right investors and their own stakeholders to become shareholders of that company, then we can start to have a very different model. The ICO world, as you pointed out, um, I think of this almost as a proof of concept. For all the mess that goes on in the ICO and NFT communities, and there is much mess, uh, I think they've powerfully shown that you can build and draw together communities. And when you can make people feel like they not only have a stake in something, but they actually have some way of profiting in the eventual success and outcome of that company, uh, things can happen quite powerfully and quite quickly. The issue, of course, is that all these entities, ICOs, et cetera, it's very murky in terms of what I'm actually getting as a token holder. You're certainly not a shareholder in that sense. And so I think we need to take it one step further. We need to start blending this exciting world of digital blockchain-based assets and the world of traditional finance, if you will, traditional securities by saying, well, can we take companies? Can we take real shares? And can we open up the pool of who can become those shareholders? To me, that needs to be the way forward. Can I, can I ask this question more plainly? Yes. You've referred to joint stock, limited liability, publicly listed companies, which have been the basic model of corporate capitalism for the last 150 years or so, in which there is, as you said, a very clear distinction between the shareholders, the managers, the employees, the suppliers, the creditors, 
the customers. Are we on the in the foothills, perhaps, of a change in the type of corporate entity which drives capitalism, which those distinctions between the shareholders, managers, employees, customers, suppliers, creditors, is blurred, if not completely obliterated. In other words, is the lifespan of the joint stock limited liability company with these clear, clearly defined roles coming to an end? Is tokenization changing? Oh, I don't think the company is going anywhere anytime soon. And I actually don't think there's any issue with joint stock companies or the concept of shares and shareholders. The issue is the paperwork. The issue is the way in which this whole system of financial intermediaries is set up in capital markets today that makes it difficult for me to be all of those roles, to be an employee and a shareholder and a supplier and a consumer. There's no legal issue for that happening and happening today. I think it's more about a mindset shift of companies starting to say, I can and should and want to be able to blend these different roles together. You know, in Silicon Valley, it's taken as a given that you should want to issue equity to your employees because that's how you align interest with them. That's how you get them to care just that much more about your company. I think we should be wanting to make our customers shareholders as well. Never mind employees. If your customers don't like you and don't pay you money, you don't have a business. And so if we can start to say the very people the stakeholders upon which my business success rests, right? my, company, my customers, my employees, et cetera. If I can also give them an upside in the company itself, then some very interesting things can happen. Again, right now, it's just that we don't have the mechanisms for doing so. There's no easy way to link a lot of these different roles. And with tokenization, we can start to do this. And again, um, things like ICO projects have shown the power of what happens when you bring together these communities, but I think we need to both have those new models and layer them on top of real shares, real ownership. Now, there are dangers, and you alluded to this uh, a few minutes ago when you said you worried about non-fungible tokens, NFTs. People, including regulators, were too focused on the technology rather than what the underlying asset or source of value was. Do you worry that in this these early stages of, of the tokenization of of wealth, if you like, certain types of investors are not absolutely clear about what they're buying. This is fairly obvious, I suppose, in the case of NFT, but might also be so in, a, in the case of a securities token. They're actually buying a lot less than they think they are. They think they're buying a share, but actually what they're buying is a share of net revenue, and they don't really have the traditional ownership rights of buying equity. Do you worry about that? Absolutely. And, and I think that this is the single thing that regulators should be worrying about. Again, I don't think that regulators should be prescribing technology. Uh, you know, uh, issuing paper shares is in a sense a form of technology. But again, that, that shouldn't be the primary concern. The primary concern should be the asset layer. What exactly are investors buying into? Now, certainly when it comes to a lot of utility tokens, I don't think a lot of end investors realize that they may or may not have any ownership rights or legal rights whatsoever. And likewise, I certainly don't think that's the case when it comes to most NFTs. Again, the technology I think makes total sense. I worry about the fact that people even use that term like buy an NFT. Like, that's like if I came to you and said, hey, I'm, I'm investing my portfolio in securities. And you're like, yeah, but what kind? Like, oh, I don't know, I just bought some securities. Uh, again, I think people, I actually think investors also need to be able to step up and take some responsibility for drilling a bit deep and saying, what am I buying? Likewise, as you pointed out, this applies to the security token space. There has unfortunately been a lot of 
mess and different messages from a lot of different players in the space. And people have started to use terms, including things like equity tokens, very loosely. The vast majority of equity tokens out there are not actually shares. Sometimes there are tokens that are backed by a paper share somewhere else, but more often than not, these are actually better described as complex derivatives or some kind of, of complex investment contract where the token is maybe giving me percentage rights to a revenue. And again, I worry that most people don't understand what that really means. They don't understand that if something is a contract, I need to look within the four corners of a contract to see what I'm getting. Not quite as the same as the, the statutory rights you get if you're an actual direct shareholder. And I also worry that people don't fully understand um, what it, you know, the nature of these tokens. Uh, if I own 10% of revenue and a company gets sold for $10 billion, I don't get a dime, right? Nothing to do with that right or interest. That's part of the reason why uh, in Fusan, we've always been so focused on saying, you know what, technology, tokenization makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's a lot of innovation to be had in terms of how we build platforms, how we interact with our customers, but the interaction does not need and probably shouldn't be happening at the asset layer. I do not think there is any problem with the concept of being a shareholder. I don't think that needs to change actually. I don't think it should change right now. And if we say, look, we can use new tech and new platforms to just represent being a shareholder, where if I hold a token, I am the direct legal shareholder, my name shows up in a register of members, that would give clarity not only to investors, but honestly, it would make regulators' life a lot easier as well, because they can apply the same rules and regulations. And that's what we tried to do for, for Fusang ourselves. Um, you know, we recently announced that we are doing an IPO for our own company. Um, the tokens, the equity tokens that we issued, these are shares in our company. When you hold one of these tokens, you, uh, your name appears in our register of members. And by doing an IPO, and bringing us through a very traditional IPO process, we said, look, you want to follow all the same rules and regulations like any other company doing an IPO. The only difference is we now have a digital equity token instead of paper shares. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll come back to your, your IPO or STO in a minute, but just before we leave this subject of what investors do and don't understand, one of the things that investors may not understand, particularly in the decentralized finance markets is they hear all this talk about how investment is being democratized. But as we move from proof of work to proof of stake inside some of these structures, far from them becoming more democratic, they're actually becoming more, if you like, oligarchic. Small groups of insiders are able to manipulate uh, or even abuse what goes on inside the company. Do you think that is an area, because you, you've been quite articulate about regulators, do you think that's an area that regulators should be focusing on and looking to fix, if you like, before this tokenization technology becomes universal? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I sometimes worry that regulators are very focused on some aspects of markets and are in many ways totally ignoring other areas like NFTs right now, where I actually see a lot of looming danger. Um, and and uh, as you'll well know, I think I have some very controversial views, uh, at least when it comes to our crypto industry, not least of which is the fact that uh, I think that DeFi is too much of a buzzword. We use DeFi today the same way that we used AI five, six years ago. Uh, as a magic wand, we could wave over almost anything. And the honest truth is that, you know, if you have DeFi, in, let's say you run a decentralized exchange, you know, some of these are not new concepts. Peer-to-peer -peer platforms in finance have been around for a very long time. 
uh, I think the right question for both regulators and investors to ask again is, well, what job are you doing as a platform? What need are you serving? Who's really running this platform, et cetera, and not getting so caught up in the technology, which is understandable, especially because for a lot of crypto assets, it's kind of so bound into the technology, it's quite hard to separate the two. But what I really think people should be drilling into is saying, okay, well, maybe let's say I've got a, um, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, what does this mean, right? Uh, is someone still operating and managing this organization? Um, if I participate in this organization, what rights and obligations do I have? And you can apply the same analysis to these entities as you might to a company or to really any kind of other entity. I don't think any of that needs to change at all. Now, you're very clearly aiming at, uh, at retail business. I think the, um, the amount you need to open an account with is like $100. So it's 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 a very low threshold to, to enter the business. Now, I can see where that appeals to retail investors. What's the appeal to you as an organization? What's the value that you see in retail yes. investors? Yes. Uh, well, we actually don't have any minimums at all in terms of opening oh. accounts. And the reason why we've been so focused on retail is, well, number one, I really think that the future of digital finance, let's call it that, is being able to allow everyone to participate on a level playing field. Uh, and this isn't just a, a moralistic or touchy-feely argument. It's me just looking at every other industry in the world. When I buy something on Amazon, it's not like there's an Amazon for rich people and an Amazon for retail. It's just, hey, here's the marketplace and we can all participate. And I think that a lot of those barriers were quite frankly, created artificially because of access, because again, you've got lots of intermediaries and with digital, we can dramatically open up the pool, not just of who can come and invest, but also the kind of issuers who can come raise funds and go out and touch those investors. The other big reason though is um, I do not believe that you can or should build an institutional only market. There's a lot of narrative in the crypto industry these days saying, oh, we're all waiting for institutions that come in and do things. But the honest truth is that most financial markets, in my opinion, for them to be well-functioning, uh, need native retail flow at some level. Uh, look at Apple as a company. It may well be the case that the vast majority of trading in Apple shares is driven by institutions and similar, but the fact that they're listed on a public exchange where anyone in the world can come trade their shares is very, very important. I think it'd be quite strange if a company like Apple said, well, you know what? Most of who owns our shares are institutions, so maybe let's just get rid of the retail investors and only focus on the institutions. I don't actually think it would work. I think in many cases, institutions come along because they are acting in response to individual demand. I as an individual want to go out and buy Apple shares. So market makers come in and say, great, I'll make markets and uh, you know, be on the other side of that trade. I don't think it's going to be any different for crypto and certainly not for security tokens. You need to have people who intrinsically want to come in and buy products that are exciting. And then the whole ecosystem will come around that to want to do all the things that institutions do. Now, Amazon, you've referred to a number of times. The thing about Amazon, it is very easy to use. How easy is it for retail investors to use Fusang services? How user-friendly are they? Oh, well, we try and be as friendly as possible. That's obviously a never-ending journey, and it should be a never-ending journey. You know, Jeff Bezos, I, I had this great line a while ago when he called customers uh, divinely discontent and said that because people's standards for what they expect in terms of ease of use and, and how they transact with a platform are forever increasing, that keeps platforms like Amazon on their toes. I think the same should be true in capital markets. 
I think for too long, uh, financial intermediaries have operated in a very closed environment, quite frankly, where they haven't been forced to think about things like user experience. Uh, it's almost a trope that interacting with most banks is not the best customer experience. And I think that we in capital markets, like every other industry in the world, need to start by putting the customer first. Now, you have got a very clear development path. You've got some products live now. You've got some other products which you're definitely planning to, to go live with in the future. If we could take the, the products which are live now first, and, and these are, if my understanding is correct, there's cryptocurrency trading, uh, there's a, a, a crypto hedge fund, and there's the, um, the stablecoin, US, USDC. Could you tell us a bit more about, about why, you've, why you've started there? Maybe begin with the crypto. Are you doing just Bitcoin and Ethereum or are you making lots of other coins available? And, and are you doing it directly or are you doing it through a, through a third party crypto exchange? Yeah. Uh, so the first asset class, if you will, that we started listing and trading on the exchange was cryptocurrencies in general. Today, we have a couple dozen trading pairs of all different kinds of cryptocurrencies, both crypto traded in fiat terms directly and also cryptocurrencies traded against each other. Um, we do that directly on exchange. We run as an open order book centralized exchange. Uh, and we started by uh, wanting to list and trade crypto because that really was a great proof of concept in terms of our own technology and our own platforms. Um, when we create security tokens, for example, the underlying blockchain architecture and infrastructure is pretty similar to when we trade something like Ethereum. And indeed today, all the security tokens that we create all sit on the public Ethereum blockchain. Um, but I think that the second uh, really bigger reason why we wanted to start by listing and trading cryptocurrencies was because I see these really um, as currencies, an FX option. Uh, we wanted to be able to build out a marketplace where we could allow people to trade in fiat currencies, cryptocurrencies, and securities, and more importantly, allow them to trade seamlessly across all of those asset classes in a single platform. Um, and again, today we've moved on to listing and trading private companies and entities like uh, you know, the tokenized hedge fund that you represent. And of course, soon with the Fusang IPO, we'll be doing our first public listing of a company of an equity token. Uh, and once we do that, you know, cryptocurrencies, private entities and companies, public companies, we think we will have proven that we can use this platform to really tokenize just about any kind of underlying assets, uh, whether that is um, you know, a public company like Fusang, whether that's a hedge fund, whether that's a real estate project, for example, that wants to wrap into some kind of digital fund, we can cater and support for all of these things. But again, not just a token layer in terms of providing this end-to-end -end platform. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about what's gonna now, about what's gonna happen next, and maybe we can start with, with equity and debt. As you've explained, you did your own equity token issue your own STO issue, you raised $10 million. Um, very straightforward proposition, these two and a half million shares at $4 each. Uh, that is the beginning of your of your equity token offering. And debt, um, there was a plan a couple of years ago for, for China Construction Bank to, to issue a, a, a tokenized bond out of out of Labuan. That in the end got got cancelled. But what are the what are the two technical lessons, if you like, you've learned from these two experiences? Doing your own equity token issue and going down that path with, with China Construction, then it, it, it being disappointed. What did you learn from those two experiences? Yeah. Well, when it comes to securities, the reason why we focus on 
uh, equity debt and fund tokens, as we call it, is to me, with these three instruments, we can encapsulate pretty much any kind of asset. There's a lot of talk in the STO space about things like fractionalizing ownership in real estate, very interesting use case, but I think the right structure for doing so is either a company, and companies are literally vehicles for fractionalizing ownership, or a fund, as in you know, a REIT or something like that. Again, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to the type of legal structures we use. We need to be able to show that we can tokenize these structures and create, again, equity, debt, or fund tokens. Um, that's why, you know, for equities, we wanted to show that we could do that with Fusang's own IPO. Uh, we've got an upcoming uh, ETF project, again, doing a public fund token. Uh, and of course, uh, there was China Construction Bank, uh, where we showed that we could do a debt token. Now, unfortunately, that project uh, didn't end up coming off in the end, um, but it really was completed, right? They, they filed the prospectus that was approved by both us and the regulators. Uh, and so to us, again, we've shown that we can create these kind of debt instruments and debt tokens. And actually that entire um, uh, CCB project, even though it you know, did not come off in the end, unfortunately, it really showed us two very powerful things. It showed us that when we can create tokens that represent real world assets, things of substance, things that are easy to understand and are just on the face of it, good investments, there's a massive amount of interest out there in the world. And that's project certainly attracted a lot of interest. And it also showed us that the kind of processes that we've built can stand up to uh, intense scrutiny, that they actually work and they function. Again, right, we wanted to build equity debt fund tokens because I think that these are the right structures to go out and then think about how we can encapsulate a whole world of assets out there. Now, just on a, a narrow question, technical question, I, I'm, I think I'm right to say that your equity token was based on Ethereum. Uh, the Ethereum protocol. Why did you choose that rather than, say, the Algorand protocol? I mean, look, there are lots of blockchains out there. And obviously, one big um, um, differentiating factor is whether you build on a public or a private blockchain. Um, lots of different ways of construing and, and categorizing different blockchains. But I actually think it's quite important that people do build on public blockchains. Um, if you have a very limited private blockchain, again, a small group of intermediaries, I don't think you're leveraging the actual benefits of blockchain technology. You're really just trying to digitize an existing closed loop system. The entire point of public blockchain technology is that we can uh, open up, decentralize, if you will, the trust layer, the way in which we encapsulate, record, and transfer securities. You don't even need to come to a FUSA, uh, an entity like Fusang and trust that we haven't accidentally deleted your shares or something like that. And the reason why we decided to build on public Ethereum as a blockchain is quite frankly, because that's where the vast majority of interest and volume is today. There are an increasing number of blockchains out there, um, but none of them have the kind of scale and adoption that Ethereum does. That said, you know, using a public blockchain like Ethereum in the way it's designed has some challenges for securities. Um, the way in which we record identity is, you know, an obvious one. We have to keep that data off-chain and we then map that off-chain data to one of these Ethereum-based tokens and then we build the register of members. At some point, uh, we will likely be building our own blockchain customized for securities and similar instruments where we can natively build in features like identity and security directly into the blockchain layer. By the way, did, did the issue you referred to earlier about Hong Kong still having physical certificates and physical stamps, did that 
have any impact upon your uh, your own equity token issuance at all? Did you have to make it available in physical form? Uh, no. So the company that we are doing the IPO for, our Lisco, is Fusang Corp, the parent company of the Fusang Group, um, and that's a Lab One company. Lab One, for example, does not require physical paper shares, and even further, they're very open about us. Uh, having a token that directly represents a share or a share certificate. So we don't have to have a token with paper backed somewhere else. And that's a bit what I was um, alluding to earlier when I think there's a lot of complaining in our industry. People will point to certain legal or regulatory roadblocks, which to me are sometimes imagined, uh, when really they should be asking, well, is there a path forward? Is there a way that I can actually do these things today? And I think the answer is, well, of course. And again, part of the reason why we wanted to show with our IPO rather than tell is to say it is eminently possible to create tokens that are also directly shares that sit on the blockchain. Are you going to make NFTs and DeFi tokens available through Fusang? Uh, so we already do list and trade uh, DeFi tokens, uh, things like Uniswap, right? tokens that power certain DeFi ecosystems. NFTs are not something that we look at right now fundamentally as a you know, central, uh, you know, centralized limit order book type exchange. Everything we trade today is fungible. Uh, but I have been increasingly interested in, let's call it the NFT space. Not so much in where it is today. And quite frankly, as I said, I think we should stop calling them NFTs and call them things like art tokens. And you know, if you want to create digital art in tokenized form, more power to you. People have physical art, they'll have digital art. That makes total sense. But I think really what we need to start looking at is again saying, well, what's the underlying asset that this NFT is encapsulating? Things like house title, your car title, all kinds of other assets. Really to me, every asset that you see around you can and should be tokenized at some point. Some of those will be fungible tokens. Some of those will be non-fungible tokens. But the two very important questions that people need to ask for something like an NFT is, again, what legal rights or contractual rights do I have exactly, if any? And number two, well, what exactly does this asset represent underneath? Are you thinking of getting a, a banking license? Uh, not within Fusang. Um, we, uh, we work with a whole bunch of banking partners, right? Um, like it or not, fiat currency still powers the world and we need to be able to provide an interface where people can bridge from fiat currencies to cryptocurrencies and vice versa. And we don't think that that's sort of our, our focus or our USP really. Um, what we want to do as Fusang, as I said, is provide a, a infrastructure platform where we can do this life cycle of token management. But I don't think that a lot of these roles or jobs to be done, as I call them, banks, brokers, you know, fund administrators, for example, I don't think they're going away. You know, a lot of people in crypto say, oh, you know, DeFi or decentralization means no more financial intermediaries. And I don't think that's true. What I think is going to happen, just like every other industry, is the way in which you do these jobs is going to be revolutionized. So again, the world is going to need brokers, but I don't want to have to fill in paper forms to, to open a brokerage account. I certainly don't want my broker to be placing their trade orders via fax, as happens with, I think, something like 60% of brokers in Hong Kong. Um, I want them to actually just fill my customer need in the most expedient way possible. I'm still going to need banks to hold value. I'm still going to need brokers to provide me advice. And I would tell the entire financial 
industry, all the intermediaries that they need to, again, be very focused on what's your core job and value you're providing a customer and don't just get caught up in the way in which you provide it. And if those firms cannot uh, recognize that and make the jump to using new technologies, I think time has proven that they can and will be replaced by firms who can use new technology. Now, whatever assets you're, you're trading, these markets are going to need liquidity. And there are a number of ways you could do that. One is these brokers that you've said you're working with. They could become lead brokers, I suppose, uh, or even principals. You could bring old-fashioned market makers to, to the token markets. Uh, and that's an area in which the retail flow you referred to would be very helpful, I guess. But you could also start to make use of some of these um, DeFi uh, liquidity pools, which are generating this liquidity um, algorithmically. Um, which of these three, or maybe there's a fourth method that you have, how are you, how are you bringing liquidity to the markets that you're creating? I think the most important thing when it comes to liquidity is making sure that you have products that people actually want to buy. Um, you know, I, ask, I get asked this question a lot where people say, oh, well, well, will you have market makers coming and making markets? And, you know, market makers don't just come blindly and out of goodwill, just sit there and create markets. They create those markets in response to flow. And to me, that at some level needs to be based on native retail flow, as I call it. When there are lots of investors, individuals who want to come and invest in a product that they find exciting and compelling, people will naturally want to come and make markets and provide liquidity and other kinds of services around that. Again, I think that's a great example of sometimes intermediaries getting uh, caught up in sort of what or how they do things as opposed to focus on the end customer need. Um, I do think there are lots of ways of rethinking how that access flow works and indeed how exactly market structure works. And one of the most exciting things I think to come out of the whole DeFi ecosystem is automated market making. Um, I personally believe that when the dust settles on, on DeFi in a few years, we'll look back and realize that AMM, automated market making, was the revolutionary idea in there. But again, I think it's important to realize that uh, liquidity isn't created algorithmically, as you say. Uh, the, the way in which these liquidity pools operate sits on the blockchain and is run by smart contracts. But at some level, it's still because people, individuals want to come and contribute to those liquidity pools. It's still because you have people who say, there's an interesting asset going on here, and I want to participate on one side or the other of the market. Do you, I mean, most traditional exchanges have these central limit order books uh, approaches. Now it's an engine which matches the bids and offers. Do you think that approach is dying or, or dead as you, as you look forward? Yes. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I think um, centralized markets, let's call it, a place in which you have a lit pool where what I can see bids and offers is necessary for price discovery. And this is no different fundamentally from when we first had markets, when people used to show up in pits and use hand-waving to place orders. So again, it's nothing to do with the technology. It's the idea of a centralized place in which buyers and sellers can come and meet. Uh, both for price discovery and also for efficiency of transactions. The reality is that you still today cannot match the efficiency of a central limit order book platform by using, let's say, DeFi or AMM platforms. I think that things like automated market making liquidity pools will end up becoming a complement to centralized exchanges. They are very, very interesting in terms of how you might, for example, want to encourage liquidity in illiquid assets. 
but those need to be matched with a centralized exchange at some point. And you see that today in even the crypto DeFi industry, where the price anchor, the, the, the open market price, so to speak, is actually provided on a centralized exchange. And that's what keeps the price in these AMM liquidity pools honest. Now, something that's often forgotten by analysts of the tokenization markets is these issues, these token issues have to be structured, they have to be documented. And I was interested to see that you formed these partnerships with law firms and with and with banks. My yes. question is, uh, A, how important do you think those uh, structuring and documentation contributions mm-hmm. are to the success of tokenization? Um, and how hard or, or easy are they to digitize? Can you digitize mm-hmm. documentation, for example? Oh, you, you absolutely can. Most documentation already today is digitized, right? We don't write it down on paper. It's just not automated. It's not templatized. And I think that's really what people need to focus on. Um, it's absolutely critical having documentation in that sense. It's not going away anytime soon. And that's why we've partnered with, with a number of really exciting law firms and banks. Equally, I don't think that the existing model of going to a law firm and saying, okay, well, I want to do an equity offering, let's start from scratch, and the law firm charges you by the hour, makes any sense either. I'm convinced that all of these processes can be templatized, and we can provide a simple path forward. And that's also why we've partnered with these law firms and banks. The partners we work with are partners where we've laid out an existing process, and we think that customers can go in and follow a process that companies like Fusang for our own IPO have already forged for them. Again, I think that law firms like any other banks need to start by saying, well, what does the customer really need? The customer doesn't need hourly advice. What the customer needs is an equity offering and documentation that's full-fleshed and ready. Uh, And I think a great example of how these processes can work is, um, you know, there's a company in America called Y Combinator, probably one of the most famous startup accelerators around. Uh, And a couple of years ago, they came up with uh, what is today known as the safe note, a simple agreement for future equity. Um, You know, sort of bridge notes and, and the like, nothing new. But Y Combinator said, you know what, we have a huge amount of market power, probably the most respected startup accelerator in the world. Let's come up with a single template document and ask everybody to use that. So they require that all of their startups and investors follow exactly this template document and just plug in the numbers accordingly. And so much so that that's become almost like a market norm. They say, well, why not just use this template documentation, make it easier on all sides so we don't have to engage lawyers from scratch in the first place. And I think that that's the way that the capital markets need to evolve as well. And that's why Fusang has always been so focused on saying, at least when it comes to that transactional value chain, that infrastructure, can we provide an end-to-end process for the client? Let me ask you about the, the custody function at, at Fusang. You've got this custody capability, the, the Fusang Vault. Now, are users of your, your platform obliged to use the, the Fusang Vault or can they choose their own custody supplier? And to what extent does does Fusang Vault have to distinguish between custody and cryptocurrencies, where if you lose the keys, you've lost the asset, and security tokens where you can at least replace it? I mean, custody is, is a crucial function, but also quite a complex one, both technically and in terms of, of your the face you're showing to the customers. How, how are you organizing custody? How much choice is there? Yeah. Uh, and what are the technical difficulties? Well, so I think first things first, when we talk about custody, 
people often mean two very different things. In the, in the crypto world, custody usually just means I help you hold things, stick in a vault, so to speak. Um, in the traditional securities world, I don't think people really care if you can help me hold my share certificates. They care if you can help me provide a whole bunch of services around that, managing the whole life cycle of a security. That's what people really need, again, as a service. Uh, and we set up Fusang Vault to be able to provide both of those services. Again, as you mentioned, both the cryptocurrencies and security tokens. Um, when people come and use the Fusang platform, all the assets you hold do need to be custodied by us for two powerful reasons. Uh, one is we think that that makes life a lot easier for our end clients, so they don't need to be worrying about things like how to store their private keys and etc. cetera. Uh, but also because when we want to transact as a centralized or in a CLOB exchange, we do need to have the assets in the same place so we can facilitate instant settlement. There's no settlement risk. But if customers want to, they can then transfer those assets pretty seamlessly in and out of our care. That's the entire power of the blockchain. Um, and when it comes to the difference between crypto custody and, and you know, things like security tokens, at one level, they're both very similar kinds of tokens. So for example, uh, Fusan Corp, our own equity tokens, these are ERC-20 uh, tokens. So that's an Ethereum standard used by pretty much any token out there or utility token to encapsulate a token. But we build a whole bunch of additional layers in the smart contract around that. Number one, allowing us to map these tokens against identity. So we can do things like build the register of members and also so that we can allow the issuer to exercise control over the shares, right? Any company, you need to know who your shareholders are and you need to be able to do all kinds of corporate actions around that. And that all means that there's a lot less risk in terms of custodying security tokens because they can't be stolen in the same way that cryptocurrencies can. Now, obviously, people could steal your equity tokens, just like they can steal your paper share certificates. But as long as we have a record of ownership and we know that you are the rightful owner of those shares, we can rectify all of those things. How do you deal with the, the financial crime compliance aspects of, of running in a, a business like yours today? By which I mean running Know Your Client, anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism, sanction screening, checks, both on the investors that are using the platform, but also on the issuers that are using the platform. Do you get involved in that or do you leave that to third parties? Absolutely, right? And, and you know, Fusang, in terms of technology platforms, are really built around three pillars. We have, obviously, the Fusang Exchange, a marketplace. We have the Fusang Vault to do custody and asset servicing, as we we're just talking about. And we have a third platform we call the Fusang Digital Identity Platform, precisely because I actually think that that is the most important job that Fusang provides. Um, the biggest difference between securities and things like cryptocurrencies is that, like it or not, every security needs to be mapped by a, a map to identity, a UBO, an ultimate beneficial owner, whether that UBO is an individual, a natural person, or a corporate entity. You cannot have shares that are anonymous. The world of bear shares is long gone, and quite frankly, it's not coming back anytime soon. Uh, and so our ability to know who our individuals, our clients are, when they interact with the Fusan platform is critical just so we can even begin to look at security tokens. And I think that's a big reason why no one else in the world has quite been able to have tokens that directly represent shares yet. 
But that's also mission critical because, as you say, things like KYC and AML are the biggest challenges facing any financial institution in the world today and one of the biggest line item costs. That said, by being able to provide a single end-to-end platform where we do, when you say, in terms of issuance, tokenization, trading, etc., we actually think that that makes life a lot easier for ourselves as a platform and also for issuers. When I'm a company today and I do an IPO, I have no idea who my shareholders are at any one time, and neither does the exchange. Now, in theory, uh, some broker or some custodian or some transfer agent somewhere should know who every share is mapped to, but the reality is it's not like there's a single comprehensive log at any one time. Apple, for example, has no idea who all of its end shareholders are. And I actually think that's one of the biggest reasons why there's a lot of disconnect, as we talked about, in public companies and stakeholders. If I can't even know who my shareholders are, how am I supposed to engage and align with them? All companies today, when you market digitally, you expect to be able to email all of your customers. You need to be able to email all of your shareholders, right? Just being able to communicate with them and engage with them. And again, because we serve the issuer side when we do the token generation, and because we also serve the investor side, we can run a single seamless identity layer that we then map against those blockchain-based tokens. And quite frankly, I think makes everyone's life a lot easier. Now, this, this end-to-end platform you've described is obviously absorbing a lot of data. It's creating and throwing off a lot of data as well. Uh, how big a, a problem for you is data security? I think data security is one of the biggest challenges facing all companies today. And, you know, all companies are increasingly digitized, even the most, let's call it traditional companies, stores data in digital form at some level. You have databases of clients, CRM platforms, and uh, all of that obviously is something that you need to be able to guard. Um, part of the reason, again, why we think it's so powerful and so important that we run this, not only as an end-to-end platform, but as a licensed financial institution that's willing to step up and say, we'll do all these jobs for you, for the issuer, for the investor, is precisely because then we can take care of those jobs. Uh, as a platform, we spend a lot of time thinking about something like data security, whereas asking an issuer who wants to go out and create a token to also have to think about data security, quite frankly, just isn't going to work. Yeah. There's a lot going on on your platform. It's a, it's a complex structure. Did you build it all in-house or did you buy pieces or did you work with a, with a technology vendor? How did you put all this together? Um, all of Fusang's platforms are architected by Fusang. Right? We, we build, own, operate and deploy all of our own platforms. And we think that's mission critical. We have to own the primary technologies and platforms that we operate on. That said, a large part of what enables us to do what we do today is the fact that we can leverage on all of these, let's call them public platforms. For example, all of our actual hardware infrastructure, so to speak, is hosted on public cloud, right? We run all of our infrastructure on companies like AWS. And likewise, the way in which we record tokens, how we run settlement is all run on things like the public Ethereum blockchain. That's what allows us to both build our own systems as a layer on top, and leverage on all of the power of things like these public systems. And quite frankly, we just, we couldn't have even dreamed of building some of the things that we built today five years ago. But you couldn't find, just on the, on the basic technology side, you couldn't find a vendor out there that could do the things that you can now do with your end-to-end platform. You couldn't just buy what you do off the shelf. Uh, well, one is always data security, as you mentioned, right? We think it's very important that we 
own and operate these platforms because sometimes you don't trust anybody else. Um, but quite frankly, it's also very important that we can uh, allow all these platforms to interoperate. I think one of the bigger challenges in the security token industry today is that there are a lot of people focused on just one slice. So you have companies that say, I do tokenization. If you want to create, print a token, I can do that. And then you have other companies that say I do custody and other companies that do you know, invest on boarding, KYC, et cetera, trading. Uh, and you end up no better than traditional financial markets, layers and layers and layers of intermediaries. Uh, we've always thought it's very important that we can allow all of these things to interoperate. And that's why we've chosen to architect at least the, our own platforms all ourselves. But simultaneously, as much as we want to own and operate our own platforms, we've chosen to build and issue tokens on top of things like Ethereum that are very public, very open, and very transparent. Mm-hmm. What's, your, what's your commercial model? How are you getting paid? Are you taking transaction fees and issuance fees, or are you doing something else? Um, yes, right. So like any exchange, we charge transaction fees, we do charge fees in terms of the issuer, you know, all, all very standard. Uh, what I think actually is a bit more interesting, though, is uh, we're trying our best to learn from the cryptocurrency world in terms of how they think about designing communities, ecosystems. You know, us as an exchange, we're no different than any network. We need investors on one side, we need issuers on the other side. And like any network, if we have those two groups of people coming together at the same time, we've got value. Right? I and mean, we need to build up that two-sided market at the same place. And so part of the reason why we're doing an IPO for our own Fusang equity right now is, of course, we wanted to raise funds. And of course, we wanted to show people that we could actually make the technology and the platform work. But we actually also wanted to be able to open up our shares, allow retail investors to own it, so that we can then start to think about what people in the crypto land call a token economics. How can we start to use our tokens, our equity, to incentivize people who come and add value to our network? If you think about it, um, whenever an issuer, quality issuer, comes to an exchange like Fusang and chooses to get listed, and if you're the kind of product that lots and lots of investors want to come in and buy and trade, you're adding value not only to Fusang as a company because you pay us directly, you're adding value to the investors on our platform as well. That's why they've come in the first place. Vice versa, the more investors come and trade shares in companies on our platform, the more value there is to issuers. So we wanted to recognize that the very customers that come and pay us money right, and trade and pay trading fees are not only adding value to Fusang, they're adding value to each other and to the network. And that's why we started to design token economics in terms of saying, well, you as an investor or an issuer, you can obviously come and buy Fusang shares and hopefully those shares are worth good money just because of the equity value. But you should also come and buy those shares because we can start to use utility benefits to power this ecosystem just like ICOs do. So for example, one thing that we'll be launching soon is to say, if you're an issuer and you list on our platform, you pay us issuance and listing fees and et cetera, but we will take 10% of the revenue that we generate from your listing and pay that back to you, the issuer, in the form of our equity. To me, that's how real alignment of interest work, right? If you add lots and lots of value to us, why not give some of that value back to you, the issuer who's brought value to us in the first place? And why not do that in the form of our equity so that you have a stake in the very company that you've helped to build? Well, it's, it's a compelling story uh, when you have all those, those pieces, if you like, under your own control. But of course, you don't control everything that's happening. And I wonder if you ever worry that as you look at everything happening in the world across cryptocurrencies, NFTs, what did happen 
uh, with ICOs back in 2017, 18, and you've got this nascent security token market, which has emerged from these developments and is and is struggling to to really take off and 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 will one day do so. But do you ever worry that 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 particularly I'm thinking of regulators, but also of you know if we get a, a a catastrophe and investors lose a lot of money, regulators will step in. Do you do you worry that what's happening in the areas you can't control, in the crypto markets more generally, the DeFi markets, the NFT markets, are going to, if you like, queer the pitch, make it more difficult for regulated security token markets to take off? Are they kind of poisoning the atmosphere potentially? Is that a well, I think it's I think it's the other way around. I worry a lot that regulators are not willing to step in and regulate enough at the asset layer. You know, traditionally, regulators have always tried to regulate financial intermediaries because that's what they know how to do. And that's that's the easy part. Um, but as assets get increasingly decentralized, regulators will be forced to start looking at the underlying assets a bit more directly. And I think actually the, the biggest barrier to adoption of security tokens, even institutional adoption of security tokens, is not the regulation of the securities industry. It's the lack of regulation of a lot of ICO projects and NFTs. The honest truth is that if you're a company today, if you're um, you know, company like Gucci and you decide to create an NFT, all the legal issues and tax issues and scammy issues out there, notwithstanding, it's fairly de-risked because you say, well, if I issue this and it goes wrong, what's the chance of a regulator coming after me? Very low. Worst case, I'll say, whoops, sorry, I didn't, I didn't really realize everyone else was doing it. How was I supposed to know? I think regulators need to be a bit more proactive, a bit braver and to step up and say, look, people are investing into ICO projects and NFTs, and they're doing this at great scale. These are not niche financial markets anymore. Um, you know, the stats vary by country, but in a lot of countries, if you're under the age of 30, majority of your investment portfolio is held in cryptocurrencies or equivalents. Now that's partly because people just aren't investing in traditional securities anymore. And I think a large reason is because of the issues around access and product selection and et cetera. But certainly people are majority investing in cryptocurrencies. And if you're under the age of 18, 100% of your investment portfolio is in NFTs because well, you can't legally buy anything else or buy securities directly. That is where I think regulators need to be paying a lot of attention. And I actually think that as regulators inevitably step up and say, look, it doesn't really matter what the technology is. People are investing into this. So we have a duty to make sure they understand what they're investing into. And they start trying to clear out the scammy part of the market. People will naturally want to flow into things like regulated security tokens, where it's real assets and you have a much clearer understanding of what rights this token actually represents. Uh, Henry, we've been speaking for a long time. I, I must let you go in a minute. Before I do, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask you, perhaps of a more of a more personal nature. The first is: Is um, your family obviously has lots of other interests? Is um, is Fusang purely an investment for the family business, or are there synergies between what you're doing uh, with Fusang and 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 the other family businesses? Oh, and this is much more than an investment, Dominic. Uh, I think we really view this as the future. Um, a lot of our you know, greater group of family businesses are involved in traditional capital markets. Um, we do a lot of those traditional infrastructure jobs, and we have businesses that throw off a massive amount of paperwork. When I talked about 
literally printing physical share certificates, for example, and putting chops and documents, uh, we have businesses that do exactly that. And I think that's why we've always realized that uh, this can't last, that surely at some point, securities must be tokenized. I cannot imagine a future in which everything else in the world is digitized, in which um, you know, we live, half of us live in the metaverse and, you know, a bunch of us live on Mars in Elon Musk's, you know, <laughs> colony. I can't imagine that we'll still have physical paper shares floating around. Um, you know, there's a recent um, industry report uh, produced by this consulting firm, Kulin Associates here in Hong Kong. Uh, and they estimated that by 2030, a quarter of all public market securities will be tokenized. So instead of being represented by pieces of paper, they'll have some kind of digital blockchain-based token. That's about a $4 trillion issuance volume. Uh, I actually think that number is way too conservative because it means that in 2030, 75% of all public market securities are not digitized. They're still pieces of paper. And that's eight years away. That's a long time in the digital and crypto space. So again, to me, this is an inevitability. How uh, the industry evolves, how exactly we, we end up uh, tokenizing and digitizing securities and when exactly this happens, uh, we'll see. Uh, but I'm convinced that this will come and is an inevitability. And quite frankly, that's why we staked so much on Fusang as a business. My last question to you is, what does Fusang mean? What's the origin of the Fusang name? You know, Fusang uh, is uh, both the Chinese tree of life, you can think of it that way, and has always referred also to this mythical land far to the east. You know, every culture has this mythological place. Uh, and when we were looking for a name for the kind of platform that we were trying to build, uh, I thought Fusang was very suited. You know, Fusang, uh, the, the legend of the Fusang tree is, um, you know, a lot of you know, school kids, you'll, you'll have heard this myth of a Hoi, the archer, and how uh, every day a raven would carry a sun across the sky like Apollo and his chariot. Uh, and one day, all nine ravens took off and Hoi, the archer, had to shoot down eight of them. A lot of people have heard that story, and not many people have heard um, of the fact that Fusang was the tree in which all of these ravens are nested. Um, and we picked that name partly because we wanted to recognize our Asian heritage, but also because we think it really suited the fact that we were trying to build what we think of as foundational infrastructure in the security token space. Um, as I was saying earlier, my belief is that all of these jobs to be done, these roles in the financial space, the need for an exchange, custody, asset servicing, an identity bridge, as I call it, none of these jobs are going away. And that this is not only necessary, but it also is what I think of as the core infrastructure to power this whole system of blockchain-based assets that represent real securities on top. Henry Chong, thank you.